You are listening to Podkistry Refocused. From the Podkist and the KISS FAQ Podcast, Ace Fraley. We are rolling. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Ace Fraley. It's Fraley, not Freely. Paul Daniel Fraley was born on April 27, 1951, the youngest child of Carl and Esther. While Kiss's own official biography, Behind the Mask, and newspaper reports about Ace's activities have often noted his middle name is David, that is not correct. In November 1979, on KJR in Seattle, Ace laughingly answered a fan's questions about middle names, seemingly more seriously than the other answers of Rupert, Banger, or Caesar. My middle name is Danny. Ace's father, an electrical engineer, was then a 47-year-old son of German and Dutch immigrants by the time the future spaceman arrived. Ace's brother Charlie, in his Growing Up Fraley online feature, once described his father thusly. Carl Daniel Fraley was born on July 4, 1903, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Remember at this time, electricity had only been in common usage for about two decades, and young Carl had more than a passing interest in this new miracle of science. He was a kid who you would always find taking things apart and putting them back together again. And I'm sure it's certainly no coincidence that Brother Paul ended up with those very same genes in large measure. Whereas young Carl was probably busy taking apart motors or switches or whatever he could get his hands on, Brother Paul loved to take apart his electric guitars, usually redesigning them in one way or another with more pickups or bigger pickups. Then of course, there was the artwork that followed. So young Carl's fascination with electricity eventually became a major interest in his life, to be rivaled only by one thing, and that would be none other than music. As talented as our father may have been with electricity, he was amazing on the keyboard. He studied piano for many years, intending, as he once told me, to make it his profession. My father played piano all the time. He had studied classical music for many years. He was he was planned on being a professional musician, but uh, the depression hit. His mother got ill, and uh, he had to. I believe he was he was a student at Lehigh University, Pennsylvania, and I believe he he had to drop out of school to come home and take care of his daily mother. And I guess he never finished graduating, and he never was able to pursue his musical dream. But he was also an incredible mathematician, and he was actually an engineer. He was just great with numbers. Just, he uh, ended up making a living as an engineer, you know, winding various types of motors and designing transformers and motors for various companies. He worked for elevator companies for many years, you know, doing all their work. You know, an elevator motor burns out, bring it to Carl, he fixes it, and it runs forever. He had a great reputation in the business, and he was just very, very good at what he did. It's interesting to note that in various U.S. Census records from 1880 to 1910 and his grandfather's World War I draft deferral, that the family's surname was spelled Freebly, F-R-I-E-B-E-L-Y, a far cry from Fraley. While Ace has suggested that his grandmother was Cherokee, Census records indicate that both Esther's parents were of German origin. Both of his parental grandparents had both been born in Pennsylvania, making them the more likely source of any direct native connection, if other than a family tale. The German side of the family came via Ace's mother, Esther Anna Hecht, who had been born to immigrant parents 
in Norlina, North Carolina in 1920 to Robert Carl Wilhelm Hecht and his third wife, Charlotte. Esther grew up in the countryside of New Hanover, though she would revisit her relatives with her children throughout their childhood. Again, Charlie Fraley. We used to go there every summer for two weeks and stay at different aunts and uncles' houses and stuff. I'd just be like a farm boy for two weeks. You know, Paul and I would do that. And we'd cut corn and I'd throw bales of hay on a truck and we'd go, you know, it was just, it was totally relaxed farm life back in the late 50s, early 60s. I have a lot of great memories of that. Totally different from living in the Bronx, let me tell you. Esther followed an older sister to New York City, where she met Carl at a church dance in early 1941. At the time, Carl Fraley was working as an armature winder at the Hoffman Electric Company, and Esther was working as a housekeeper. The couple married at Emanuel Lutheran Church at 88th Street in Lexington Avenue in Manhattan on November 30th, and were soon building a family. Ace has two older siblings, Nancy, born in 1945, and Charlie, born in 1949. His brain was so loaded, it nearly exploded. The poor girl would shake with the load. He'd ne'er leave the girl with the strawberry curl and the band played on. That song snippet playing in the background, other than being a recording of The Band Played On by Guy Lombardo, was the song Ace's Aunt Ida recounted Esther singing after telling her that she had met Carl Fraley at a dance. Ace grew up in a small three-bedroom apartment on Marion Avenue near 201st Street in the Bronx. It was just off the Mashaloo Parkway near the New York Botanical Garden and the Bronx Zoo. Middle class, his neighborhood represented the sort of melting pot New York City embodies so well. Charlie recalled that it was pretty cramped, and he and Ace shared a room together. Due to their closeness and age, the two, who were very different personalities, would spend a lot of their time together. While cramped, Ace recalled a happy youth. From his book, No Regrets, Ace Fraley. It's pretty hard to look at the Fraley's and suggest that my upbringing contributed in any way to my wild and crazy lifestyle and the insanity that was to ensue. Sure, my dad was a workaholic and never home, but there was always food on the table and we all felt secure. My parents enjoyed a happy and affectionate marriage. I can still see them holding hands as they walked down the street or kissing when dad came home from work. They always seemed happy together and there was very little fighting at home. Charlie Fraley concurred that with their father always working and their mother busy running a household with three children, that parental attention was in short supply, resulting in the children being left to their own devices. The closeness in age also meant that the brothers became very competitive. Be it the middle brother keeping the baby of the family in his hierarchical place, the games they'd play soon became a battleground for dominance over one another. One continuing presence throughout their apartment was music. A piano was a unifying object, with Carl Fraley often playing various pieces for the family. Esther Fraley could play too. It's hardly surprising that some of the children would gravitate towards the instrument. Nancy became quite accomplished on the keyboard, and Charlie Fraley also took lessons. Ace, however, wasn't much interested in tickling the ivories. Throughout his elementary years, he participated in sports at school. He told David Leaf in 1979. The competition wasn't that fantastic at the parochial school I went to. I was the fastest kid in school, won all the races and medals for track. I was captain of the basketball team in eighth grade. Lots of times playing basketball, I'd get a sprained finger catching a pass, and I wouldn't be able to play guitar for a few days. I also played football for a year, but I got hit so hard once that I did a complete flip in the air and fell down. So I said to myself, this is bullshit. My hands are too important. The guitar comes first. Ace also wasn't much interested in school. He recalled in his book, No Regrets. When it came to school, I was always a bit of a square peg, forever trying, or not trying, to fit in where I knew I didn't belong. I just couldn't seem to work up much enthusiasm over academic pursuits. 
I probably didn't even belong in a traditional classroom setting. I would have been better off at a school that catered to kids with more creative interests like art and music. During my school days, there were only a few interesting teachers that got my creative juices flowing, so I spent a lot of time figuring out creative ways to avoid going to school in the first place. Ace attended Grace Lutheran School for his elementary education, and then graduated to Our Savior Lutheran for high school. Having already been rebelling against rules and authority and structure, Ace had all too often found himself in trouble even before reaching high school. Hanging with the Junior Duckies gang at French Charlie's Playground in the Bronx Park probably didn't help him. At Grace Lutheran, he found the daily discipline stifling. He recalled in no regrets. I hated our savior Lutheran. I had to take two different buses to get there, couldn't stand the uniforms, and found myself drowning in discipline the moment I arrived each morning. By the time I was a freshman in high school, I'd had my Philip parochial education. For some reason, I had this idea that if I could just transfer to the public high school in my neighborhood, DeWitt Clinton, everything would be better. So that's what I did. But a switch from parochial to public school was anything but a panacea for a young Ace Fraley. The two education systems are in many ways vastly different. Akin to moving to the city from a small town, DeWitt Clinton High School had more than 4,000 students, and for better or worse, he was leaving the comfort of a small personal environment that he'd known for the previous nine years. At DeWitt, it was almost like the Lord of the Flies, and Ace wasn't part of an established clique or social group, but knew a few people and was soon hanging out with the musically inclined, daydreaming of rock and roll during class or in the park across the street with his buddies. Other notable alumni from DeWitt include Stan Lee, Robert Klein, and Neil Simon. But Ace wouldn't graduate. Even though he excelled in art and became something of a teacher's pet, getting him out of the trouble he invariably found himself in. Unfortunately, after the death of that teacher, he got kicked out of DeWitt and went to Roosevelt High School on East Fordham Road, where he ultimately dropped out to focus on the band he was in at the time. He did later go back and obtain his diploma at the urging of his then-girlfriend, Jeanette. Leaving junior high school, Ace had already started drifting away from the budding gang life that was taking some of his friends on a different path. It wasn't a particularly thought-out process. Ace's interest in music was simply taking him in a different direction, to breaking into warehouses and fighting in parking lots. In this clip from Ace's interview for the Musicians Institute Conversation Series in 2018, Ace described where gangs and music intersected. Yeah, I got involved with a gang because I got tired of getting beat up. You know, when you're in a gang, you have protection. You know, you're walking down the street and somebody wants to pick a fight with you and his buddy will go, don't pick a fight with him, he's in the Ducky Boys. Yeah, and what movie was it? Was the Ducky Boys were in that movie, The Warriors? The Warriors or, is that the name of the film? Whatever. But that's pretty much why I got involved with the gang scene, even though it wasn't something that I really, really was excited about or really wanted to do. I just wanted protection. And uh, what happened was, as I got older, you know, I, I joined the gang when I was about 13, and that's around the time I picked up a guitar. So. By the time I was 14, I was already in bands and performing on weekends at like church dances and so on and so forth, wherever we could play. So by the time I was like 15, I was really into it and, and working almost every weekend. And I'd be getting calls from the guys in the uh, gang going, hey, we got a fight tonight in a schoolyard, you know, bring your switchblade. And, uh, I'd say, I can't go, I got a gig. So pretty much music kind of got me out of that whole gang scene. It saved my life. Like millions of others, the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964, affected both of the Fraley boys. Charlie Fraley had already started playing classical guitar, being a Shire youth due in part to a stammer while Ace was out on the streets. 
While he may have dabbled with his older brother's guitar, the acoustic guitar didn't really excite young Ace until a friend brought over a guitar of the electrical variety. Ace would go over to that friend's house to play the electric guitar. Finally, he had found something that had excited him. Where his brother had gravitated towards traditional folk and the music of Peter, Paul, and Mary, or Paul Simon, Ace was blown away by the electrified sounds of the guitar. He later told Frank Rose in Circus Magazine, I was amazed. I mean, holy shit. That was unbelievable, what came out of the amplifier. I freaked. He was playing songs like Wipeout and Walk Don't Run, and I went nuts. Both Charlie and Ace learned how to play guitar together, since they were so close in age that they could relate to the same things, especially popular music. For Christmas 1964, Ace's parents gave him his first electric guitar, which according to Charlie Fraley, may have been the Zimgar Starburst that he had had. That would be that Zimgar uh, Starburst guitar that he had. had terrible action. It was awful. I mean, you know, I, I think the first real good guitar he got was like a, maybe a knockoff on a Stratocaster. That, you know, wasn't, it wasn't a Fender, but it was another brand. And then he ended up getting Fender guitars. You know, ultimately, it was Les Pauls all the way. You know, when he, I'm sure when you saw Jimmy Page playing a Les Paul and Eric Clapton playing a Les Paul, that was it. The first song Ace learned was Herman's Hermit's 1965 number one hit, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. It may not have been particularly pyrotechnic in terms of guitar, but it was a start. And the brothers continued to learn together. Charlie Fraley recalled. We, we, we learned how to play guitar together, you know, uh, right, right around 1964-65 when the Beatles were, you know, were just doing everything, you know, just turning music around. Everybody wanted to grow their hair long and play guitar, okay? So Paul and I just really did that right around the same time. It's just my orientation was to learn chords and learn how to strum right away. He didn't want to deal with chords, just wanted to pick out the note and turn the, the, the volume on the amp all the way up to the top. <laughs> that's all he wanted to do. <laughs> Even before he could really play, that's all he wanted to do. You know, And, you know, we all went through some growing pains. My ears you know, are still a little sore from that. But he learned quick. And within a year, he was so, you know, without lessons, he was so proficient. It was just amazing. There was this one song that we played by a group called the Blues Magoos. Mm -hmm. Okay, they had a song named We Ain't Got Nothing Yet. We ain't got nothing yet. And then there was a, a guitar, a little guitar in instrumental section. They went, we ain't got nothing yet. And it went, and he, after one year, self-taught, he nailed that perfectly. He was like 15 years old. And he was playing with that kind of dexterity. Just natural talent. You know, and then, you know, between Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and all those guys that became so popular in the late 60s, he just was, he was in bands playing all their music. And he just developed his chops, you know, using, you know, them as, as a bass line, and then he just developed his own style. But he had great music, and, you know, just, you know, he had to learn from. And it was just a great time, where there was a lot of great stuff, you know, being produced. While he didn't take formal lessons, Ace learned from other players in the neighborhood. One such player was better known as Pepe Castro, from the reference Blues Magoos, whose family lived in the same neighborhood. Ace got Pepe's number from his mother and called him up asking for some pointers. Pepe was more than willing to sit the young Ace Fraley down and show him how to play a few bar chords. The success of the Magoos certainly made it clear to Ace that someone like him, from his neighborhood, could make it. 
And it didn't go unnoticed to Pepe that the Magoos are honored in Ace's pentatonic solo on Love Gun, the title track from the 1977 album. In a Vanya Land interview, Pepe Castro commented, The Magoos were one of the acts that signaled to him that he could do it. He loved all the greats, Zeppelin and all that stuff, but the Blues Magoos were a little local act that came from the same neighborhood and said to him, Hey, if those guys can do it, I can do it. Within a year of taking up the electric guitar, Ace was playing in bands. His first would be with his brother, loosely named The Microorganism. Charlie Fraley explains. Yeah, yeah, early, very early on when, you know, when I was still, when we were still in high school together, we were in, in, in a band called The Microorganism. What can I tell you? That's what it was called. <laughs> and we didn't gig much. We just actually practiced, practiced for a while, and then it just kind of fell apart. You know, you know, you know, we were just young kids. I was like 16. Paul was 15. I brought him in, you know, to play lead and stuff, and a, a drummer from, you know, a, a friend I knew from my school. And, you know, it was just kid stuff. You know, but uh, I already saw that, you know, Paul was really you know, on his way to do the great, great guitar. So that's all he wanted to do. He said, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And just, you know, he just stuck with it. A succession of other bands followed, such as The Exterminators, The Outrage, and The Four Roses. By the age of 16, Ace felt his prospects were halfway decent as he progressed from school talent shows to bars and clubs. As his repertoire grew from a few Beatles songs and hits of the day such as Wipeout by the Safaris, which he would later reference on his 1978 solo album. However, the Beatles didn't do much for the rebel in Ace, who naturally seemed to gravitate towards the bad boy image of the Rolling Stones. From Ace's interview for the Musicians Institute Conversation Series in 2018. I mean, the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, you know, when I was 13, I remember getting the single of I Want to Hold Your Hand. And, and you know, the, they all had those matching suits, you know, with no collars. And, uh, of course, and the Rolling Stones, you know, huge fan of the Rolling Stones. Actually, more so than the Beatles, because, you know, I'm attracted to bad boys. Because I grew up that way. I, play, I played ping pong with Keith Richards at Shea Stadium before they went on to do their concert. <laughs> True story. Ace's musical epiphany took place at the end of March or early April 1967. Unlike the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, Ace doesn't recall the specific date that he attended the Murray the K presents Music in the Fifth Dimension showcase at the RKO Theater on 58th Street and 3rd. The showcase was massive, running for nine days from March 25th, with Mitch Ryder with guitarist Jim McCarty, who is one of Ace's main American guitar influences, headlining from the 27th. Other acts included Wilson Pickett, The Cream, The Who, Jim and Gene, The Blues Project, Chicago Loop, Mandela, and at various engagements, Phil Oakes. Also on the bill, Simon and Garfunkel, the Blues Magoos, and the Young Rascals. The shows themselves started at 10 a.m. and lasted all day. Literally, that is a menu chock full of popular music that has lasted through today. Ace recalled this event in his book, No Regrets. I had to be a part of it. Since the show started at 10 a.m. and ran pretty much all afternoon, school was out of the question. That show was a life changer for me. I was a month shy of my 16th birthday and in the early stages of trying to form some sort of artistic identity. I loved messing around with the guitar, and I played in bands with my brother and some friends. On some level, I knew that I wanted to be a professional musician, but it wasn't till that day sitting near the front of the RKO Theater, that it all became clear to me. I wanted to be Pete Townsend. I wanted to be Eric Clapton. 
I wanted to be a guitar-slugging rock star. That there has been a song from Cream on each of his Origins releases to date speaks volumes. Ace is also named My Generation by The Who as one of his most important songs to him during his formative years. While he has yet to record a cover of a Who song, Paul Stanley suggested My Generation for their collaboration on Origins Volume 1 in 2016. However, Ace didn't think that particular song should be touched. Ace's love of Pete Townsend was clear. He still considers him one of the best chordmen in rock and roll history and told the Aquarian magazine in 1998. If anyone wants to learn how to play chords on the guitar, listen to all the Who records. If you can master all those songs, you'll be a fucking ace rhythm guitar player. But on that magical day in 1967, even with most acts just performing a handful of songs at best, two bands sealed the deal for Ace. The Cream, with Clapton's fluid playing, and the awesome power of the trio, and the showmanship and the theatricality of the Who. As Ace recalled in his book, No Regrets, they left him spellbound as they smashed their, quote, instruments and left the smoke-filled stage in ruins. This is where it all ends. If there needed to be another hammer from the gods to get Ace Fraley on his path, he would also bear witness at Led Zeppelin's first New York City appearance at the Fillmore East on January 31st, 1969, as they opened for Iron Butterfly. I'd like to introduce Led Zeppelin to you. On bass, and have a dog and it's available. John Paul Jones, John Paul Jones. In the book, Kiss and Tell, Ace's former friend, Bobby McAdams, recounted jamming with Ace and Rob Sabino in the 1960s. Rob, who recorded demos with Ace for Fraley's Comet in the 1980s, and more recently appeared on Space Truckin' on Origins Volume 2, recounted his early interactions with the Spaceman in this clip from Sharky's Treehouse podcast. Um, Ace Fraley grew up around the corner from me, from Kiss. Just that we were musicians. All the music, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a camaraderie. Everybody knew who the other musicians were. Yeah. And uh, when, we, when we would hang out in the Bronx, the one thing I remember about Ace is that when we got together to like just talk, you know, hanging out in the park around some, I don't know, we must have been over 18, I'm sure. But, you know, drinking beer in the park. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we were over 18. I'm sure. And um, we were sitting there. <laughs> And people would say, what do you want to do? Oh, I'm going to be a musician. Oh, yeah, I want to be a musician, too. I'm going to stick with it. I'm really going to do it. I love this. And Ace was the only one who said, now, I'm going to be a star. And he was going to do it by being a musician. But his goal was to be a star, to, be a star. to do whatever it took to get with that particular group that was going to make it. And he became the first one to make it. Ace paid his early dues even to the point of being knocked out and having his job broken for arguing with a bar owner over payment to his band. This contributed to his distinctive appearance. Many of these early bands had Larry Kelly as the lead singer. Larry and Sue Kelly received a writing credit on Ace's Rip It Out from the 1978 solo album. 
The first of these bands would be the Magic People, which was active from late 1967 throughout 1968. Moving around, often with members coming and going, Ace also played with a band called King Kong throughout 1968, with the band eventually becoming Cathedral, a band named also used by a pre-kiss Gene Simmons. Somewhat more shockingly, Gene Simmons and Ace Frehley's orbits may have almost crossed paths with members of various bands that they each played with. Paul Frehley had been given his nickname Ace by one of his King Kong bandmates for regularly setting him up on dates. You're a real ace, he would proclaim. By the time he was in Malimo, Paul Fraley would make the formal switch to solely using his nickname. Certainly by the time Kiss came around, there was already one Paul, so his nickname came in handy to help differentiate between the two. Obtaining his high school diploma gave him access to new job opportunities, and for a while Ace worked as a mailman at the Times Square station. He didn't last long and also worked as a messenger, liquor store delivery boy, and a cab driver. A non-nefariously obtained 1Y draft classification also left him relatively safe from call-up to serve in Vietnam. Ace was bouncing around from band to band, looking for that elusive band that would serve as the vehicle to deliver his dreams. He sometimes would be playing in multiple bands concurrently. Ace was building a reputation around the Bronx in the local music scene. By 1970, he'd be playing in a band named Honey, performing at a variety of pubs and clubs, such as The Fore and Aft in New Rochelle, and The Rustic Pub, and Fantasy East in the Bronx. Honey lead vocalist Rich Sircell recalled, I had heard through the grapevine that a band in the Bronx was looking for a singer, so I showed up for an audition in somebody's basement. I dragged a friend George along with me because I did not know what I was getting into. Paul asked me to sing a few Rolling Stones songs and maybe even a Humble Pie tune, although I'm not sure on that last one. At the end of playing together for a while, he turns and says to me, we are playing in a club on Friday, and that was pretty much it. I guess that was his way of saying I was in his band. I do remember my friend George asking him to play a certain obscure song by a British group called The Move, and after a quick listen, he said he had had it down. We both listened in amazement as he played it perfectly. The funny thing is, it was a song called Hello Susie, which Honey ended up playing later on. He was a man of few words, but his guitar playing was awesome. He could play any lead or solo, note for note. He would always stand close to me on stage with his guitar slung very low. He had the look of a rock star and the chops to back it up. He always had an innovative side about him. For example, he would have foot switches near him and something strange would always happen when he used them. You might hear the Johnny Carson theme, only instead of here's Johnny, it would be here's honey. Sometimes he would put his foot on the switch and the theme from the All in the Family TV show would come on. Quite frankly, there was never a dull moment with Ace. We played many clubs in the New York area. Our set consisted of many British bands music. Here's a list as I remember it. Jumping Jack Flash, Brown Sugar, Street Fighting Man, and many other Stones tunes. Several Jethro Tull songs. I don't remember the exact titles. Zeppelin, The Who, Hello Susie by The Move. We did an Alice Cooper medley featuring Be My Lover and 18. One of our favorites was Come On Up by The Rascals. Of course, we did our own version. 
We also did some NAS including Not Wrong Long and Under the Ice. Vanilla Fudge, Keep Me Hanging On. It should come as no surprise that Ace has recorded covers of both Jumping Jack Flash and Street Fighting Man on his Origins volumes. On July 17, 1970, Ace attended Jimi Hendrix's appearance at the New York Pop Festival at Downing Stadium on Randall's Island. Amusingly, Ace snuck backstage, while perhaps ambled amiably in a nonchalant fashion would be more appropriate. And Ace ended up helping set up Mitch Mitchell's drums, whom he had also conversed with, not knowing that it was Mitch that he was talking to. Mitch had changed his look by growing a beard and wearing a headband at the time. The performance would be Jimmy's last New York area appearance prior to his death that September. Ace has continued to honor Jimmy's influence on him with recordings of Spanish Castle Magic and Manic Depression with Bruce Kulick on his Origins album. And of course, he performed on the Eric Singer Project's version of Foxy Lady in 1998. In another clip from Ace's Musician Institute Conversation Series interview in 2018, Ace recalled the bizarre encounter. That was like such a bizarre day. I went, uh, you know, there was a peace concert in Randall's Island in 1970, and I went there, I hitchhiked to get there, and uh, Hendrix was performing, you know, Mountain was playing, there was a, a bunch of... Uh, Big groups playing. And I snuck backstage, and uh, after about 15 minutes, people started saying, who is this guy? <laughs> because I was a nobody at the time. And uh, they were gonna kick me out, and then one guy says, hey, can you do anything? Because, you know, back in those days, there was no laminates. You know, everything was just kind of like thrown together. You know, it wasn't, everything wasn't as, uh, What's the word I'm thinking of? Organized? Organized. Everything wasn't as organized as it was now than it was back then. Things would be thrown together, especially like a peace concert where probably a lot of the bands weren't making a lot of money performing. Anyway, so I, I got a chance to, so they said, well, look, we'll put you to work. I go, I can change guitar strings, I can set up amps, I can set up drums. So next thing you know, I'm setting up Mitch Mitchell's drums from the Jimi Hendrix experience. <laughs> and I'm working with an English roadie, and uh, at that point in time, Mitch Mitchell had changed his image dramatically. He went from the afro to growing a beard and having long hair and with a headband. Okay, does anybody remember that? Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, anyway, I wasn't aware that he had changed his image. So when he walked over to help s set up the drums, I didn't know it was Mitch Mitchell because I didn't recognize him until he said to the English roadie, hey, Mitch, what, uh, uh, I mean, the English roadie said to Mitch, he goes, Mitch, what snare are you going to use tonight? And then all of a sudden, here I am, like a 19-year-old punk from the Bronx, and I'm setting up Mitch Mitchell's drums with Mitch Mitchell. And then, you know, I was, in high school, I was carrying the album around with me every day. It was just like, the whole thing was so surreal. I still question that it happened, but I know it happened. Believe me, I know it happened. And, uh, you know, that's been my life story, like bizarre things happening. A few weeks later on August 6th, Ace was among 20,000 people who attended Sid Bernstein's Festival for Peace at New York's Shea Stadium, and he repeated his backstage antics. 
This time, he roadied for the likes of Johnny Winter, handing the drummer his sticks during the show and restringing John Kay's guitar. Ace had bumped into Steppenwolf's guitarist at Randall's Island, and John remembered him, allowing him to continue his task. Years later, one of the few shows Kiss would have opened for the band Steppenwolf in St. Louis in September 1974, John Kay had purportedly banned Kiss from using many of their theatrical effects, resulting in Kiss canceling. Meanwhile, Ace's bands were traveling further afield, performing at the likes of Kutcher's in Monticello. Sullivan County and the Catskills were a fertile stomping ground for many a horny, young New York City band. Ace would see numerous concerts throughout the New York area during his youth, even the Grateful Dead. Ace recalled in No Regrets having a dreamlike encounter with Jerry Garcia. I don't remember the exact details of my meeting with Jerry. Instead, I recall dreamlike bits and pieces of a trippy conversation. I can hear myself asking Jerry, How's it going, man? And I can see him standing there smiling through that beard. Good, man. Good. We're taking it to the people tonight. I think I might have thrown in a right arm brother back at him. Jerry was exactly as advertised. A laid-back hippie who seemed less like a rock star than a guy you'd see strumming his guitar outside a subway station, case open, bumming for quarters. He was a god at the time, but you'd never have known it by watching him. Even on stage, he was content to just stand there and jam, his demeanor no different in front of 10,000 fans, or 100,000, than it was when he played in Bay Area coffee houses. You had to admire that about him. The guy was genuine. Another important band Ace witnessed was Humble Pie, and he was present at the Fillmore for shows recorded May 28th and 29th, 1971 for their Performance Rockin' the Fillmore live album, released in November of that year. The most notable and professional of Ace's pre-Kiss bands, and the one most Kiss fans will have heard of, is Malimo. Malimo was very much the project of Roy Singer and Tom Ellis and their Tomorrow Morning Productions. From Iola, Kansas, the pair had reconnected in New York City in 1969 to pursue various artistic efforts. Tom Ellis was already an accomplished singer and actor who appeared at the September 1971 opening of the John F. Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. as a soloist. He performed Mass and Bernstein's I Believe in God at the request of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Roy Singer, a classically trained pianist, would be primarily responsible for the music, with Tom writing lyrics. According to Tom, Malimo was named after a secret musical instrument used by the African Pygmies for their initiation ceremonies. The band had been through a few drummers, bassists, and guitarists, as Roy and Tom sought to find the right players for their vision. Malimo had already been in the studio prior to Ace being recruited, probably through an ad in the Village Voice. While Ace was apparently not involved in the writing of any of the material that Malimo recorded, Roy has described the young guitarist as straightforward and serious towards his craft, and well-organized musically with his ideas. The band Malimo gigged regularly, often playing downstairs at the Village Gate, opening for the likes of Elephant's Memory and Larry Corio. was probably there that they were recruited to appear on a broadcast of the syndicated Rockstars radio show, hosted by Richard Robinson, by producer Kenny Weichart. The 10-minute feature, including Malimo, aired nationally during the week of March 22, 1971. Ace, along with Roy, Tom, and Christine, were interviewed briefly about their music, with Ace deadpanning that he had learned to, quote, regulate his volume more with the band. The feature concluded with a music panel discussing the band's sound, with one participant describing them as acid rock, 
and suggesting that they'd sound better acoustically, more in a vein similar to Peter, Paul, and Mary. The song played interrupted with a commercial played over the solo section was one of Tom's earliest compositions, East of Yesterday. Ironically, it had originally been a folk song that he had transformed into a more rock form for Malimo. Other songs recorded by Malimo in December 1970 included City of Tears, Alone Together, and the extended Pleasure Palaces, a trilogy from which two of the circulating demo snippets come from without their transitional music. There may also have been another song titled New Day, which would make sense from one of the circulating demo clip's lyrics. The band were described comparatively as being similar to Jefferson Airplane, due in part to their female co-lead vocalist Christine Murphy's voice. At this juncture, in a final clip from Ace's 2018 Musicians Institute interview, Ace discussed his experience with Malimo. Yeah, that was actually the first time I was in a professional studio, and we tracked about four or five songs in the same studio where Frank Sinatra recorded, so it was a rush. Here I am in the RCA studios. I mean, it was a lot bigger than the studio we recorded the first Kiss album in. That group never took off. Um, you know, it was kind of a Jefferson Airplane kind of takeoff band, you know, with a girl singer and a guy singer. The songs were okay, but they weren't great. But, you know, I mean, it, the group was like an experiment, and I got my feet wet, you know, being in a recording studio for the first time, a real professional studio. So on, you know, we got the record deal with Kiss. At least I wasn't completely, you know, not aware of what was happening. With a prospective record deal with RCA, while Ace wasn't overly enamored by the material or the band, they did have the sorts of prospects he was looking for. Ace and two other members of Malimo, bassist Barry Dempsey and drummer Dave Polinsky, also moonlighted as the Muff Divers, fulfilling their need for heavier rock in a power trio vein. Charlie Fraley recalled seeing Malimo play at the Village Gate. I went to see him at the Village Games play with Malimo one time. And uh, it was a soft kind of, you know, soft kind of band. Kind of reminiscent of like Spanky and our gang. That kind of thing with a female lead singer. You know, a poppy kind of sound. Paul would play lead on some songs. He would play acoustic guitar on other songs. He was always into ballsy heavy metal. You know, that Zeppelin was like, you know, the ultimate. That kind of punchy, strong, you know, rock rhythms that he could play his wailing lead guitar to. So Malimo didn't really cut it for him. It was just a, you know, it was just something to do until the opportunity came along. At least three songs were recorded at RCA for producer Steven Schwartz. And these surfaced on an acetate in 2014, the likely victim of a band member's record collection unwittingly sold in a garage sale, though only samples circulate. Unfortunately, the album was abandoned when the label pulled the plug on the sessions. Malimo's end was abrupt. They were booed off the stage in April 1971 while opening for Phil Oakes, who was transitioning back to folk from rock. Malimo's heavy rock was not appreciated, and the pairing with Phil was an inappropriate billing. A Village Voice review noted that audience members were seeking respite from the noise in the venue's washroom due to the volume of the unlisted opener. The Times described the band as a loud and offensive rock band and noted the group, Malimo, included a male singer who wore skin-tight pants and spent the whole hour waving his behind at the audience. There was a girl singer who screamed unpredictably during the songs. Members of the band felt that they were heading in the wrong direction and they decided to take time to regroup. Tom Ellis recalled Ace during this time with the band. Quote, He was always sounding just like he did when he went to Kiss, which is hardly surprising. A fun tangent, Looking Glass, a band that had a hit with Brandy You're a Fine Girl and later included Stars guitarists Brandon Harkin and Richie Rano, rehearsed at the band's loft at 414 Broadway. While Ace went his own way, he remained friendly with the band members as they transformed into Tomorrow Morning. Members of Molimo were invited to Kiss's showcase at the former Fillmore East in January 1974. 
Funnily enough, Tomorrow Morning was also signed to Casablanca Records in 1973 and released a single, Free Willing, backed with I Wished I Was in California, in the summer of 1974. Like many other acts at the fledgling label, they were produced by the house team of Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. But it didn't go anywhere, and the material recorded for an album was never officially released. With the failure of Molimo, Ace was lost in limbo, and he was looking for his next opportunity. In early December 1972, Ace was shown a promising ad in the Village Voice that had caught a friend's attention. It read simply, Lead guitarist won it with flash and ability. Album out shortly. No time wasters, please. Ace made the call and was put through the same questioning that Peter Chris had endured about his looks and credentials. Was he fat? Are you tall? And so on and so forth. Having passed the initial inquisition, Ace was invited down to one of the open auditions. Ace was driven down to the audition by his mother. He was still living at home and had begged for her help so that he could take his amplifier and guitar more easily across town. Famously, Ace showed up wearing one orange and one red sneaker, and he declined to fill out the band's official application form. After listening to them run through the song, Ace put all of his bags of tricks to work as he ripped through the song Deuce with the trio. The rest, they say, is history. But that's a story for another time. Podkistory Refocused is an audio documentary about the early years of KISS, a joint program between the Podkist and the KISS FAQ podcast. Any samples of music or TV heard here remain the property of their owners. Opinions heard here do not necessarily reflect the views of our staff. If you like something you've heard, buy it today. Support the art and the artist. If you enjoy the show, like KISS FAQ or the Podkist on Facebook or Twitter and please rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Podkistry Refocused.